You're listening to sermons from South Point Fellowship, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God, to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpointfellowship.org. You know, sometimes folks, they, uh, they tell a story, and it begins in one spot. And by the time you get to the end of the story, you forget where the story started or where the purpose was, or you started dozing off. Anybody like that? Anybody know somebody like that? Anybody related to somebody like that? So we're talking about those people, not us, right? Because my stories are awesome, and all my little side details. And you're, you're sitting there talking, you're talking to somebody, and, and they were talking to this lady. By the way, this lady, she went to college over here. And while she was at college, she dated this guy. You won't believe what that guy does now. He does this. You're just like, man, get to the, get to the, what's the point of the story? We're going to be looking at Judges 4 and 5 today. There's no frills, thrills, nothing on the edges, the outskirts of this story. The author of Judges says, here's what you need to know. Boom, get to it. That's chapter 4. Okay, so as we read through chapter 4, go to Judges chapter 4 with me if you would. It's in the Old Testament, seventh book of the Bible. Uh, as we look at this, just understand we, we can sit here and we can parse out and we can figure out all the different details that are here. And there are some really important ones here. But understand the point of this story is for the author to say, here's why this is important. Boom, 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 boom. So we're going to go through this. We're going to see big picture. God is in control. He's sovereign behind every situation and circumstance. So our purpose of looking at this is to grow in the fear of the Lord. The beginning of fear, fearing the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so our point is not just to simply read this so we can know about God, but it's to know God and fear him through this. So Judges chapter 4 if you're, if you're already there in Judges chapter 4, say, got it. Good, we'll go. It says this, And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera. Say Sisera. That's important. Who lived in Heresheth Hagoyim. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. So here's how we got here. God created Adam and Eve in the garden. He said, I want you to be my people. They messed up sin. Quickly, we get to Noah. We get to Abraham. We get to Moses, the people of God. And God says, worship me alone. We have the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. Don't worship anybody else. Surrender to me. Obey me. Then we get, so we get the, the, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. Then we get Joshua. Joshua comes in after Moses as a leader of the people of Israel and says, if you obey God, he will bless you. If you disobey God, he will not bless you. It will go bad for you. And the people said, yeah, duh, of course we're going to obey God. But then Judges starts, and we see this seven-step cycle all throughout the book. Basically, they're, they're worshiping God. Yeah, things are good. And then they're like, wait, we really want to worship the gods of the Canaanites. And so we want to we pursue those gods instead. When they do that, God says, all right, I'm going to, like you asked for it, you're going to get it. They get into oppression, into bondage, into slavery. God's angry at them. He judges them. Then the people cry out to God. God in his mercy steps in and says, okay, I'll give you freedom. Then there's peace in the land and the people worship God. Sometimes for eight years, 20 years, 40 years, sometimes much less. 
So here we are again. So this is the people, this continuous cycle that we've seen for the first three chapters of Judges so far. We get to chapter 4, and the author begins, and the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of God. They, they can't stop doing it. So again, they're in the middle of a need of spiritual and physical deliverance. They're worshiping other gods, and they're being physically oppressed by the Canaanites. They, they can't see. We think, man, these people are so ridiculous. And, and we think, I wouldn't be like that. At best, sometimes, we want to equate ourselves to the people of Israel in this story because at least they come back around to God again. Here's what I would say. The reason I said Cicero is important, understand in this story, we're actually, even though we're the people of God, we probably more closely relate to Sisera being the enemy of God, okay? That's for free. You don't have to title on that. But as we look at the first four verses, the first three verses here, we see that Sisera was a really bad dude. He had 900 chariots of iron. That today is like having all the smart bombs and drones in the world, and everybody else has slingshots, okay? So the Israelites, they're, they're sunk. And so Sisera says, I want to make you my slaves. So this is terrible. They, they've been in the middle of slavery. They've been in the middle of sin, and they don't even recognize its staleness. That's where they are. They keep going back to it. Verse number four. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord your God of Israel commanded you? Go, gather your men at Mount Tabor, take 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun, and I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. So Deborah says, hey, Barak, my, my commander, has not the Lord told you take 10,000 men and go up against Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army? Here's what Barak says. Barak says to her, um, verse number 8, Barak said to her, if you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And Barak called out to Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh. And 10,000 men went up at his heels. And Deborah went with him. Now notice verse 11. This seems like a crazy random verse. It's just kind of thrown in there for free. Remember, this is a story. Every detail is important, and we're going to keep marching on. None of these are superfluous. Verse 11. Now Heber, the Kenites, had separated from the Kenites the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak in Zananim, which is near Kadesh. So we have here, now we have the players, right? We have Jabin, who is the king. We have his man, uh, Sisera, over here we have the Israelite people, Deborah, we have her commander-in-chief who is Barak. We don't know, uh, we know who his father is, but we don't know who his wife is. We're going to say Michelle, okay? So uh, Barak, uh, husband of Michelle. So we have, here's, here's how it's set up. We have the good guys, we have the bad guys. Uh, so we have here in verse number 11, it's, it's like this weird, uh, crazy little thing. But if you go back and look at number 4, verse number 4, it says that Deborah was a prophetess. She was a prophetess, and what this means is that she preaches and teaches the word of God. That's what she did right here in the Old Testament. It says that she was a judge, which means people literally came to her for her ruling on decisions in the nation of Israel. So it would be like for us, um, some really big things that are happening in the world right now. 
If you look at next week, we have the Chiefs and the Bucks. They, they would come to her and say, who should I put the money on, the Chiefs or the Bucks? This is a huge decision. One of the biggest ones that we see in our culture today. And she would rule on those things and probably some other decisions as well. But if we notice, Deborah here did not lead with might. She led with wisdom. This is a woman who, who's, she, we, don't, we don't know a whole lot about her. She appears here and then she's just kind of poof gone. But we know that she was really important because she's leading the people of Israel. Here's also what it does not say. It doesn't say Deborah led the people of Israel because there was no other guy to do it. It says God wanted her to lead the people of Israel, and so she did. She led with wisdom, not with might. Othniel, the first guy we saw in Judges chapter 3, he led with an army. He said, I'm going to go with an army. Then we saw Ehud, who led as an assassin. And then we saw Shamgar, who was basically Jason Bourne. He said, I'm just going to wipe out people with an ox goat and kill 600 of them just for fun on a Saturday afternoon. But we have here a different kind of leader, a different kind of judge. And this is Deborah, who doesn't have that might, but she leads here with wisdom. One thing I'll say about that, because some of you are like, bro, you're about to... Which, which path are you about to take here? You about, you about to get on this road and say she's preaching and teaching as a woman, and so we're able to do that today? Here's what I'll say. We, we have to understand Israel in this current context, in the Old Testament context, is different than America and the church today. We can't say, here's a woman doing this, so women can do anything else they want to for the rest of history, no matter what it looks like. There are two things happening here. The people of God and a civil state. In this context, those two things are overlaid. Remember a Venn diagram, middle school something? I don't know. I, I, it took me too long to get through that. Uh, so we have the people of God in a civil state. Old Testament, it looks like this. Israel was the people of God and a civil state, a theocracy. Today, 2021, people of God is the church. Civil state is not the church. So when we look at the Old Testament, we understand these are completely overlaid. And so when we say, oh, well, here's, here's a woman who's preaching and teaching, and she's leading, and so that means she should be able to lead in any sort of context. She's leading here in a civil state context, okay? Today, it is not okay to say, let's take a woman and put her in any, any leadership position in the church at all, because now those two things are separated. This is a vague inference. There's not a whole lot here. There's way more in the New Testament about the way the church is supposed to be organized and structured than we see right here. We, we cannot take a vague inference and make a doctrine based on that and say we're going to hold on to this. So understand, as we read this text, I also can't just ignore this and say, well, a, a prophetess means something different. Because a prophetess in the Old Testament is the same thing as a male prophet. We also have to see that the only office in the Old Testament that a woman does not hold is that of being a priest. And so if we want to say a woman can hold anyone, well, now we've got to take the priest. We never see a female priest, and in fact, it was only for men. So we, we, we can take this, understand this. This is not going to extrapolate throughout the rest of, of, of the message, and it doesn't have all these far-reaching things. We have to look at these things separate from today's modern New Testament church context. And if you have any questions about that, if you cook me some really good food, I'll come answer them for you. We see in verse number 9, we see Deborah says, or Barah goes to Deborah and says, hey, I know the Lord told me to go down with 10,000 men and fight Sisera, but I want you to go with me. Would you please go with me? This guy recognizes the fact that Deborah's word meant a lot. He understands the fact that she was a leader, a strong leader among the people of Israel. So he says, will you go with me? And in verse number 9, she says, ah, I guess so, but here's what's going to happen, is that Sisera is going to be delivered into the hand of a woman. 
Some commentators would say, well, that, that just means that she's kind of making fun of him. Barak was weak. Uh, he shouldn't have asked for her help. But that's not the case at all. Because later we see Barak celebrated as being a man of faith. So he wasn't going there as a faithless man, as a weak man in need of this woman. When she says in verse number 9, he is going to be delivered into the hand of a woman, what she is saying is prophetic. That's all it is, is prophecy. She's saying, here's what is going to happen, just so you know. So it's not a declaration of, hey, man, you don't have very much faith. It is simply prophetic. Verse number 12. So we pick up, and so they're supposed to go down. Verse number 12. When Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera called out to his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him, from Harasheth, Agoyim, to the river Kishon, that's important, verse 14. And Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. Notice Barak's faith. 10,000 men to all of Sisera's men with 900 chariots of iron. It, this is not Barak who's like, yeah, manly dude. Man, he's, this takes a lot of faith. He says, all right. You said it, I'm going to do it. Verse 15, and the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Harasheth, Agoyim, all the way back to his hometown. And all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. We see in verse 17, but Sisera fled away. So, we're going to stop at verse 16 for a second. Sisera is going to get away. The rest of the story gets, it gets really interesting. But before we get any further, we have to see here, we're like, okay, so, so how do they really win the battle? We, get, we have them in this valley. We've got this random verse 11 you know, uh, verse. It says that God is the one who slayed them. If you go back to the middle of verse number 13, it says they went from Harasheth Agoyim to the river Kishon. Now, this was a river basin, and this time of year was dry season. So he says, okay, so what's the, what's the big deal about that? Go over for a second to chapter 5 with me in verse number 4. I'll be reading all this in just a minute. But chapter 5 and verse number 4 says this. Here's how the battle was won. Lord, when you went out from Seir, when, the, when, they, when you marched from the region of Edom, the earth trembled and the heavens dropped. Yes, the clouds dropped water. Now, chapter 5 is not simply imagery of what happened, even though it's poetic. It's a, it's a retelling of what we're reading in chapter 4. Remember, chapters 1 and 2 were mirrors of each other. Chapters 4 and 5, it's the same story. Chapter 5, we have a little more explanation of what happened in chapter 4. So here's what happened. He chased them down into this river basin of River Kishon, and when they got down there, all of these chariots of iron, God sent rain from heaven in the middle of rainy season. This was, not, this was not Barak's victory. This was God's victory. He opened up the heavens and said that God came down from Edom. He stomped with thunder and he came down and said, now I'm going to make it rain. He said this was the Lord's victory. This would be like us getting snow in July here in Georgia. Like it's this crazy thing. The Lord steps in and because of the Lord stepping in, everyone is wiped out. They're in this river basin and this, it comes flooding through. Now, those 900 chariots of iron, really important detail, can those chariots of iron do anything in the mud? No, they can't do a thing. Otherwise, Israel would have been destroyed, wiped off the face of the planet. But God steps in, 
in his supernatural power with people who are responding, not with ability, but with availability and saying, we are willing. We'll go down, even with 10,000 men. I'm going to show faith, and I don't know what's going to happen. But Barak takes his men down there, and he says, uh, we'll have to figure this out. They get down there, and God sends a thunderstorm. God is the source of salvation. Yahweh is the source of salvation. What we've seen all throughout this book is that what we think to be common sense, we're going to follow that path. What we see here is Sisera's advantage quickly turned into a liability because of the salvation of the Lord. Then we get to verse number 17. So everybody's wiped out. But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael. I don't know why we had a family worship today. This is uh, it's graphic. So, but it's the Bible, you know. The wife of Heber the Kenite. For there was peace between Jabin the king of Hazor and the house of Heber the Kenite. And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord. Turn aside to me. Do not be afraid. So, she turned, so he turned aside to her into the tent. And she covered him with a rug, and she said to her, he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, Stand at the opening of the tent, and if any man comes and asks you, Is anyone here? Say, No. But Jael, the wife of Heber, I will stop right there, verse number 20. So here's what we see. So Sisera runs away. He gets away from the battle. He's, he's still alive, only dude who's alive. He goes out in the middle of nowhere. Did he want to go to an Israelite tent? No, he's not going to run into the Israelite camp and say, hey, would y'all please hide me? Y'all hide me. But where is, look back at verse 11, where is Heber? Is he anywhere near the Israelites? No, he's out here like a recluse out here in the middle of nowhere by himself sitting in all this land. So Cicero runs out. That's why verse 11 is important. He runs out. He sees this random tent in the middle of nowhere. He's like, I'll hide out there. That mustn't be the Israelites. He wouldn't have gone to an Israelite tent if he had known it was. He goes in, he says, okay, Jael, he, she says, hey, come on in. Yeah, no big deal. She knows who this guy is. He's probably got some armor on. He, you know, he's, he's marked in a way that she knows this is the enemy. And she says, oh, okay, come on, come on in. We'll, we'll see what's going on. And he says, yes, would you please hide me here? So then he says, I need something to drink. I need somewhere to lay down and make sure you cover up for me. She says, okay, instead of water, I'm going to give you some more milk. Here's some more milk. Go, go lay down. And then she tucks him in. She says, here's a rug. Here, go lay down. Then we get to verse Number 21, but Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. Then she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. The next sentence doesn't need to be in the Bible, but it is. So he died. Okay. Uh, Still, authoritative word of God, okay, I'm saying that tongue-in-cheek is not heretical. Okay, so he died. Obviously, if a, t- a tent state goes all the way through your temple from one side to the other into the ground, you're dead. But the author put it in here just to make sure you know this wasn't a magic trick. So he died, verse 22. And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, Come, and I will show you the man whom you are seeking. So he went into her tent, and there lay Sisera dead with the tent peg in his temple. Verse 23. So on that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. And the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, king of Canaan. We see here the sovereign hand of God. Now, let's go back and and understand, Jael, was she anybody important? Was she anybody special? Did she have some sort of special talent? 
Did she say, hey, let me, let me try to figure out a way I've been practicing my archery? Let me, no. She, she's a housewife. Now, a tent peg was similar to just a regular household appliance for us. It'd be uh, an iron or a frying pan. It's something that we have just sitting around the house. It's a vase, a lamp, something that would be common in our homes. Here we have a tent peg. It's something normal. She's a normal person using something common. And she says, he's over here sleeping. He's the enemy. So she walks over to him and boom, drives that stake right into his temple. So now he's literally nailed to the ground. She gets done. She walks out. She's like, what's up, Heber? Nailed it. And he's like, all right, this is awesome. Uh, so then we have Barack showing up. She's like, you won't believe what I did. This is awesome. He's like, man, this is great. Now let's go get the rest of the Canaanites. And they do. God uses unusual means. He uses ordinary people. These are common, ordinary people. He uses whoever he wants to use. Could he have used a man instead of Deborah? Sure, he absolutely could have. He does before and after this. He chose to use her. Could he have used a, a mighty army against Sisera? Sure. Could Sisera, could he have wanted Sisera to die in the battle? And he did? Yeah, every other person died. But he wanted to say, again, it's my hand. It's my strength. It's my power. It's not yours. You're just a simple, ordinary person. We have here a moral, moral dilemma. If you're a child of the 80s or 90s, as am I, you used to have the bracelet that said WWJD, right? What would Jesus do? This passage presents us with a moral dilemma. Like I said last week, when we have Ehud sticking the knife into big fat King Eglon, we can't simply say, oh, we should be able to slaughter anybody who's in power if we disagree with them. We can't moralize this. This is a narrative from the Old Testament. So the same way we, can, we can't say, hey, if, if a woman can do this, a man can do it. If, if, uh, if somebody from this tribe can do it, another tribe can do it. We can't look at this and say, we, let's take every single person, every single action, and apply it perfectly to every single situation. We can't do it. This is what the Bible is saying, but we also know that the Bible does not support murder. So this presents us with a moral dilemma. The point of the passage, though, is not to solve this moral dilemma. Because if we come to here and say, okay, what am I supposed to take away from my life? Uh, am I supposed to kill people? Am I not? Can a woman do this? Can she not? Am I supposed to, you know, uh, trade in my, my CRV for a chariot of iron or should I not? Like, what should I be doing? Should I, be, should I be, begin living in a house with, uh, with a tent so I can have tent pegs around in case somebody attacks? Or should I get rid of my AR-15? Like, we, we can come here and, and, by the way, a lot of us are going to isolate one part of this passage, but not the rest of it. Nobody's going to give up their air conditioning or their heat this time of year for a tent with tent pegs. So let's not over-apply this passage. But we look at this, we see the big picture in this. The, the thing we want to walk away from, and we're going to see this in chapter 5, is that God is sovereign over all things, over creation, over the rain, over his enemies. He's a just God who is going to bring judgment to his enemies. He's going to bring justice to his people, and he's going to use an ordinary means and ordinary individuals to bring that about. Because then we don't get the glory from that, but God does. So we see in chapter 5, this is the song of Deborah and Barak. So this is the response. Then sang Deborah and Barak, the son of Abinoam, on that day, that the leaders took the lead in Israel, that the people offered themselves willingly. Bless the Lord. Hear, O kings, give ear, O princes, to the Lord I will sing. I will make melody to the Lord, the God of Israel. 
Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the region of Edom, the earth trembled and the heavens dropped. Yes, the clouds dropped water. The mountains quaked before the Lord, even Sinai before the Lord, the God of Israel. In the days of Shamgar, we saw him at the end of chapter 3, in one verse. Son of Anath, in the days of Jael, the highways were abandoned and travelers kept to the byways. The villagers ceased in Israel. They ceased to be until I arose. I, Deborah, arose as a mother in Israel. When new gods were chosen, then war was in the gates. Was shield or spear to be seen among 40,000 in Israel? My heart goes out to the commanders of Israel, who offer themselves willingly among the people. Bless the Lord. We see here Deborah, primarily, who wrote this, who is singing for us to read this morning. And she says, my heart went out for these people. Here's why. Because this was a godless nation. But then God steps in. Verses 3 and 4, he says, I'm not at Sinai anymore. I was there, but I am continuing to provide for you. Remember at Sinai, they got the Ten Commandments on top of the mountain? Moses goes up, and we see thunder and lightning, and it's crazy, and people are freaking out, and they still worship the golden calf. And then Moses comes down with his face shining like one of those pictures of baby Jesus. He's got the nuclear halo around him. And Moses comes down and says, I've been with God. I've seen the presence. I've seen the face of God. And it scared me almost literally to death. God says, I was there at Sinai, and I'm still with you today, working for you. It was my power on display then. It's my power on display now. In verses 6 and 7, it talks about the culture there, about this social decay. The Israelites, nobody went out from their homes. Everybody was scared. Nobody cared about the social structure of the day. The, the, the society was in such decay. Here's what one commentator said. It was basically the epitome of every man for himself. It was the epitome of individualism. But then God stepped in and said, y'all, y'all are my people. That's the Hebrew interpretation. Verse number 10, he says, Tell of it, you ride on white donkeys, you who sit on rich carpets, and you who walk by the way, to the sound of musicians at the watering places. There they repeat the righteous triumphs of the Lord, the righteous triumphs of his villagers in Israel. Then down to the gates marched the people of the Lord. Again, this is retelling what has happened as they took over the Canaanites. Verse 12, Awake, awake, Deborah, awake, awake, break out in a song. Arise, Barak, lead away your captives, O son of Abinoam. Then down marched the remnant of the noble. The people of the Lord marched down for me against the mighty. From Ephraim, their root, they marched down into the valley. Following you, Benjamin, with your kinsmen. From Machir, marched down the commanders. And from Zebulun, those who bear the lieutenant's staff. The princes of Issachar came with Deborah. And Issachar, faithful to Barak, into the valley they, they rushed at his heels. Now notice, so right here, she's going through saying, all of you leaders, we saw it in verse number two, these leaders, thank you for leading. And by the way, these other tribes, thank you for following me. Deborah, thanks for trusting me. Thanks for trusting Barak as he led you. We didn't know what was going to happen. So we have these faithful, the faithful clans she's just mentioned. But then notice at the end of verse number 15, now we're going to see the unfaithful. Among the clans of Rumen, they were, there were great searchings of heart. They just didn't have it in them to go fight. Why did you sit still among the sheepfolds to hear the whistling for the flocks among the clans of Reuben? There were great searchings of heart. Gilead stayed behind the Jordan. Dan, why did you stay with the ships? Asher sat down at the coast of the sea, staying by his landings. But Zebulun is a people who risked their lives to the death. She says, great dishonor for those who didn't do anything. 
But she says, great honor for those who risk their lives to the death. Naphtali, uh, too, on the heights of the field. Verse 19, the kings came. They fought. Then fought the kings of Canaan at Tanakh by the rivers of Megiddo. They got no spoils of silver. From heaven the stars fought. Again, this, by the way, is a reference right here. This language that, uh, that the author is using, this is, again, talking about the rainstorm that came. From heaven the stars fought. From their courses they fought against Sisera. The torrent Kishon swept them away. The ancient torrent, the torrent Kishon, march on my soul with might. Then loud beat the horse's hooves with the galloping, galloping of his steeds. Curse morose. Again, somebody who didn't participate. Says the angel of the Lord, curse his inhabitants thoroughly because they did not come to the help of the Lord. To the help of the Lord against the mighty. So we see here, we see the tribes who did help. Praise be to them. It wasn't because of their power, but it's because of their willingness that God was successful, that God's salvation was put on display. But then here are the ones who, in the end of verse 15 through 17, and then again in verse number 23, those who didn't fight. And if you look there at verse number 27, sorry, verse number 21, notice this is one of the epitome verses of this, of this song. It doesn't say Barak won the victory. It talks about God stepping down into nature and washing them away, and it's God's victory. Barak was fighting for God. And Deborah and Barak in this chapter are saying, whatever the cost, whatever the odds, fight for God. Stand for him. Stand on truth. Then verse number 24. Most blessed of women, B-J-I-L. Does anybody know where else we see that that? phrase, that little turn of phrase right there. There's only one other woman in the Bible who that's used for. Mary, that's right. Again, a hopeless, a seemingly hopeless, hopeless situation. A virgin who was going to be outcast, who was unmarried, who got pregnant. But blessed is to be Mary. And from the, from the loins of Jael, we don't have uh, the Savior, Jesus Christ. But for Mary, blessed is her for being willing, for not saying, man, you're crazy but for being willing. And from her willingness, from Mary's willingness, we see the Savior of the world, the ultimate deliverer. So here the author says, blessed be Jael, who for this day is a deliverer. Remember chap, uh, chapter 4 and verse number 9? Deborah says, a woman is going to be the one who de- deliverance is going to be in her hands. It's through Jael. It wasn't even through Deborah. Most blessed of women be Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. Of, by the way, r- real quick, if somebody's going to jump on, on the more, uh, we'll call it progressive, bandwagon of, of women and men can do whatever they want to do, notice here, when, when they mention men's names, they don't say the wife of someone. That's why I can make a joke about Barack's wife. It says he's the son of someone. Notice every time a woman is mentioned, including Deborah, it says she's the wife of someone. So these women are not acting out by themselves. It was a team effort. It was a group effort. It was God showing his power through his people. I'll keep going, I know. Most blessed, uh, verse 25, he asked water and she gave him milk. She brought him curds in a noble's bowl. Now, verses 26 and 27, here's the way the Hebrew reads. Remember I said this is poetry? Here's how it reads in the Hebrew. It actually sounds, and you can notice it in the English here, how there's little short phrases. In the Hebrew, the, the way they wrote this, it meant to be sounded and read like a hammer on a stake peg. Okay, so as the author writes this, they're being reminded of her driving a stake 
threw both of his temples into the ground. So here's how it be read. And she sent her hand to the tent peg and her right hand to the worksman mallet. She struck Sisera. She crushed his head. She shattered and pierced his temple. Between her feet, he sank. He fell. He lay still. Between her feet, he sank. He fell. Where he sank, there he fell. Dead. Out of the window she peered. The mother of Sisera wailed through the lattice. Why is his chariot so long in coming? Why tarry the hoofbeats of his chariots? Her wisest princesses answer. Indeed, she answers herself. Have they not found and divided the spoil? A womb or two for every man. Spoil of dyed materials for Sisera. Spoil of dyed materials embroidered. Two pieces of dyed work embroidered for the neck as spoil. Now, these verses right here, they're, they're talking, the authors, Deborah and Barak, are essentially making fun of Sisera's mom. You're like, well, that's not very nice. Sure. Keep reading. Okay, just keep reading. Like the rest of Judges. So far, it hasn't been nice. This is dripping with holy sarcasm. And Sisera's mom is sitting back. Now, it doesn't say Sisera's wife. So we got this dude who's leading an army who's still living at home with his mom. But Sisera's mom is back at home waiting for her son to come back. And she says, man, why is his chariot so long in coming? We expected him back, back by now. And it says she expected him back with young girls. And what they would do is they would capture the young girls and turn them into slaves of every variety. I'll keep this G for us this morning. Of every variety. And she says, what about the girls? What about the girls in his life? And the author here is saying, while Sisera's mom is over here crying about it, Sisera is getting his head pounded in by a woman. Ironic, huh? Then we get to verse number 31. So may all your enemies perish, O Lord, but your friends be like the sun as he rises in his might. And the land had rest for 40 years. What's the point of this story? Is it, is it the work of these people? Is it church structure and government? Is it how to be a, a godly housewife? No. The, the, the point of this, I hope not. <laughs> the, the point of this story is to show the mighty hand of God. Is that the point of your life? Is it to show the mighty hand of God? Or is the point of your life to say, man, look at how great I am? Here are three things, three Piercing truths. I like to see us to see from this passage. Nobody? All right. <clears throat> Fair enough. Dad jokes. Piercing truths? All right. The first thing that we see here is that God gifts his people for his purposes. God gifts his people for his purposes. God needs both men and women for his mission to be accomplished. He has gifted all of us with the gifts of the Spirit. He gives us all access to the Word of God. There's not a special revelation for men and a special one for women. All of us have spiritual gifts that are necessary for the body. Women, be leaders, spiritual leaders in your homes, in the church, in the places where you work. Lead people to greater awareness and worship of who God is and what he has done. We need you women for the church, for us to grow in our holiness. Men, we need you to be men in the home, in your workplace, in the church for the sake of holiness. IMB came out with some stats a couple years ago. International Mission Board, Southern Baptist thing. And there are four times as many female applicants as male applicants. Which is wild. Men, we need you. 
Another stat came out. Both of these are LifeWay stats, by the way. If a child receives, receives Christ, if a child repents and believes, there's a 3% chance that that family will come to saving faith in Christ. Three. If a wife believes, puts her faith in Christ for the first time in an unbelieving family, there's a 17% chance that family will come to know Christ. But if a father puts his faith in Christ, there is a 93% chance that that family is going to be converted across the board. Men, we need you. We need you in our holiness. Women, we need you as the church is pursuing holiness. Not only does God gift his people for his purposes, but God blesses obedience and he curses spectators. If you notice at the beginning of this, of this chapter, we have the Israelites. Uh, and there I was reading a commentary by uh, a guy named Del Davis, and he said this is pressurized purity. That was the phrase he used. And an uh, old Presbyterian guy, and actually is the pastor at my sister's church uh, now, or was the pastor there. But he said this is pressurized purity. Because at the beginning, we have Israel, who only loves and worships God when he's doing for them what they want him to do. And when there's social pressure for them to obey, that's the only time when there's an external force on them to believe in God rather than an, inner, an internal conviction of the Spirit. The, the next thing we see here, we, see, we saw in chapter 5, we have all of, these, all of these folks, all of these clans, these tribes who did not obey God. Now, were they doing anything bad, anything wrong? Not necessarily, but they just weren't doing anything which was wrong, which was against the command of God. And I would ask you, are you just sitting on the sideline? Are you Because here he says, for those who are sideline spectators, you are to be, verse 23, morose, cursed. Cursed are you if you think that simply watching and listening is enough. Jesus says to follow. He doesn't say sit back and watch and listen to me. He says to follow me. We need more housewives with tent pegs more than we do incredibly gifted men and women do spectacular things. He uses common people here in this passage all throughout. God blesses obedience. The last thing we see here is that God promises to right every single wrong. In verse 31, they talk here about the peace that came as a result. There is 40 years of, of peace here in the land. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And I think to the second coming of Christ, as, as we look forward to him coming again, when all oppression will be crushed, when all injustice will cease. Here are the imagery is of the sun. When Christ the sun comes down and he melts the ice of hatred in our hearts and he clears away the fog of injustice, when every tear is wiped from every eye and all things are made new, that's our hope. It's in Jesus Christ and him coming again. Jesus says in or Paul says in Romans chapter 3, these verses are on the screen. It says, Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, talking about Christ, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. If you ask an atheist, who bears the burden of justice? And every other religion that I could think of last night, who bears the burden of justice? The answer is that we do. I pay and you pay. But Romans 3 says that Jesus pays. He pays for the past, and then he forbears judgment on us, and then he pays for every sin in the present and in the future. 
He pays for every single sin for those who are part of his body. So when we look at the book of Judges, where do we see, where do we see Christ in here? We see Christ in the fact that Jesus is going to either punish those who are his enemies or he is going to punish himself on the cross. The Father is going to punish him so that as in Christ, we can receive forgiveness of sins. The judgment is coming. He is the just and the justifier. So we look at the judgment like, man, these people needed a savior. They did, and we need a savior anymore. But think about this too. I think a lot of times we walk around thinking the people who hurt me or the unjust things that have happened to me, I'm going to walk around with a hammer and a tent stake in my hand and put it through the heads of other people. But Jesus comes down and says, you don't have to do that because you are the enemy. You deserved a tent stake hammered through your temples. And yet that same tent stake was put in the hands and the feet of Jesus Christ. So we're not the ones who deliver justice and vengeance. But we look to Christ and say, Father, thank you for sending him on our behalf. And our response is one of worship, and our response is one of evangelism to the lost, so they can know that justice has been paid. It has been met in Jesus Christ. When you try to save yourself, you are going to fail. But in Christ, we have victory. When we look at something other than Christ, we're filled with nothing but hatred, But in Christ, we can have joy. When we look at ourselves, we're often filled with anger because we feel the need to be justified. But in Christ, we can express love. When we try to control every situation and make sure things are balanced, we're riddled with fear and with worry. But in Christ, we can experience hope and freedom. Jesus Christ is the just and the justifier. He delivers us from the hands of our enemies. He delivers us from the hand of the greatest enemy, which is death and sin. He does all this because he requires it. And he does all this himself. So we think, how can we be delivered from our enemies and how can we be delivered from our sins at the same time? And it's the cross. That's where at the cross, Jesus takes on the wrath of the Father. So I would plead with you this morning. If you are not part of the family of God, then you are an enemy of God, and you will receive the justice of God on your own head. But for those of us who are part of the family, we can rejoice. Rejoice in the fact that Jesus Christ has taken our punishment and the justice of the Father on himself. If you have never repented of your sin and put your faith solely in Christ, if you're still trying to do it yourself, This morning is the day of salvation. I would plead with you to fall upon the mercy of God, who in his grace identified with us to be put to death by us, to be raised again by the Spirit, and then he commissions and sends us as his people. Even us, as jacked up and messed up as we are. That's a crazy, crazy picture of justice.